You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to Form Now. My name is Dr. Ben Akers. I'm the Executive Director of Formed and Professor at the Graduate School. Joining with me today is uh, Dr. John Seahorn, a colleague and friend. Uh, we've taught here for the last five years together at the Augusta Institute, teaching theology and scripture. And uh, Dr. Gray is on vacation. He's asked me to guest host. And today's topic, today's theme, we're going to be talking about St. Helena. And you may or may not know anything about St. Helena, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. St. Helena was the mother of Constantine. So you may have heard of the name Constantine in history. We're going to unpack this and some of the story. But this story is almost like an Indiana Jones film. There's going to be excavations, there's archaeology, and it's, it's, a, it's going to all end up in the finding of the true cross. And that's one of the themes we're going to be talking about today is the finding of the true cross in Israel, but also in the finding of the, the cross in our own lives. And so St. Helena, you may have, there, she's been popularized in a book by Evelyn Waugh. And Evelyn Wall has, it's a nice short book. He was very proud of that book. It, most people haven't read it. If you've, um, if you've read some Evelyn Wall, it's considered one of his minor works. But he tells a little bit of the history, and a lot of this is speculation. Some of this is shrouded in mystery. But one of the things he talks about with St. Helena is that she was a stable maid, a virtuous stable maid that was, that was wooed by Constantius Chlorus, the father of Constantine. Uh, he seems to have maybe divorced her. Uh, Evelyn Wall and Louis de Wall and some other writers in England uh, projected the theory that she was British. So this is, it's actually interesting, after Evelyn Waugh's book in England in the 1950s, uh, over 100 churches were dedicated to her memory. Mm. So he really popularized her in, uh, in England. Uh, but John, what do we know about uh, St. Helena in her early life? Yeah, almost nothing, actually, Ben. Um, yeah, the, the, um, the association with Britain probably comes from the fact that uh, Constantius Chlorus, uh, whom you mentioned, a minute ago, actually died on campaign uh, in Britain, and that's where his son Constantine was uh, acclaimed as emperor by uh, by the troops. Um, but we can go back, maybe in in, uh, in Helen's life, Helena, same thing, uh, and and kind of come back to that time period. So um, she does seem to have come from uh, an impoverished background, a fairly obscure background. Uh, at some point, married this guy Constantius uh, Chlorus, and she had the misfortune of marrying someone who was kind of uh, up and coming, uh, because what happened was in um, in the year 284, the Emperor Diocletian, who needed to really effect a lot of reforms in uh, in the Roman Empire, split the empire into two, into an eastern half and a western half, in order to make it a bit more manageable. Uh, nine years later, in 293, um, he actually uh, split the the empire once again, so that you had a system with essentially four different emperors. You had two senior emperors uh, who had the title Augustus, and you had two junior emperors who had uh, the title Caesar. And Constantius Chlorus was one of these Caesars. And at some point along the way, uh, in order to kind of advance his own career, uh, he wanted to marry the daughter of one of the senior emperors, and so he cast uh, St. Helen aside. Yeah. So if you thought our political system was tricky, <laughs> it sounds like it's, there's a lot of history there. It's, it's fascinating. And so was she, he meets her, uh, they, they get together. Is she Christian? Do we know anything about her origins? Is she, was she raised you know, Christian? That's a great question. We don't know 100%. Uh, 
Um, but according to Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, who's a great early church uh, bishop and historian, um, and from whom we get a lot of our information about Constantine and his family, he actually says that, um, that it was Constantine himself uh, who brought his mother uh, to the faith. So that wasn't uh, until later. Again, we, we don't know a lot about uh, kind of where she was during this time. She kind of comes back into the scene in the year 306. So this is the year when, as I mentioned, uh, Constantius was killed in Britain. His son, Constantine, uh, was acclaimed as emperor uh, by his troops. Um, this is going to launch him uh, into several years of, of conflict uh, before he's kind of actually recognized as emperor by all the other uh, interested parties. Uh, but it's at this time, it seems, that he kind of brings her back out of obscurity and, um, and, and brings her um, into this noble life again at his court, which at that time was in Trier uh, in France. Uh, so Helen is really kind of on the scene with Constantine from the beginning uh, of, his, of his political career. I'm sure he had a great affection and love for his mother. And he's bringing her around. And one of the things, when Constantine then becomes the sole emperor or the, this, you know, tries to make this, this final assertion of his, of his, uh, of his power, uh, there's a famous battle in Rome, mm -hmm. and uh, can you talk about that? But there's a sign in the sky, and it leads to what what yeah. Helen is going to be able to do in finding the cross. Yeah, no, it's 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 a great question. Um, it's one of the most famous things about Constantine, and as with many things in ancient history, it's very difficult to kind of get to the bottom of the historical record. So I mentioned that in 306, Constantine was acclaimed as an emperor, uh, and then he he ended up having to to fight against some rivals. Uh, in order to assert that. And this took him a total of about six years. And um, so leading up to this famous battle, he'd, he'd had a couple of victories uh, against the forces of a guy named Maxentius. Don't worry, there won't be a test on any of this. <laughs> uh, and Maxentius's troops had withdrawn to Rome and Constantine uh, was coming up and they were getting ready to have this battle. And I believe it was October uh, of the year 312. And in actually the earliest account that we have, and so I, I, I like to privilege this as a historian, it comes from the pen of um, a, a theologian uh, named Lactantius, who was a North African Christian and um, uh, who'd been in the imperial court actually for quite some time and was a confidant and kind of spiritual advisor uh, to Constantine eventually. And so his account of it comes from just like a couple years uh, after the event, and he actually says that it was the night before the battle, Constantine had a dream uh, in which Christ instructed him uh, to put this particular sign on his men's shields. And the sign was, it would look kind of like an X, the English letter X, with a line down the middle and a kind of loop at the top. And you may be familiar with that from uh, maybe altar, the altar at your parish, that's a common place where you might see that. It's known as the key row symbol, and it's the first two letters of Christ uh, in Greek. Now, a little bit later, there's another version of the story. This, this comes from Eusebius, and he wrote it down well, maybe 25 years uh, after the fact. And he talks about Constantine also having had a vision of the cross in the sky, but he didn't quite know what it meant, and that was cleared up uh, in, uh, in the dream. And it's interesting, and maybe we can kind of come back to this point because it raises interesting questions. Eusebius says that, uh, that when he saw the sign, uh, it was accompanied uh, with a message that um, in, in Greek it said, tuto nika, which literally means conquer 
in this. Hmm. And that's, that's all I kind of said. Constantine took it literally. I'm kind of reminded of uh, the wonderful story about St. Francis of Assisi, when our Lord speaks to him from the crucifix in the, the chapel of San Damiano and says, rebuild my church. And, uh, and Francis begins by just taking that literally and actually brick, or stone by stone rebuilding that church. So Constantine takes this as kind of marching orders uh, for this battle uh, and actually enjoys a, a, what many regarded as a miraculous victory uh, the following day and so was able to assert himself as emperor. So I also heard that, I've, I've heard that the spoken in Greek, because that would have been the language that they would have spoken. I've also heard a kind of a Latin translation of this or a, ra a Latin spin on it, that yeah. in this sign you will conquer. Yeah, in hoc signo vinces. Right. It is interesting because the Greek version we have, it's a command, mm. conquer in this. And it doesn't actually say sign. In, in Greek it says you will conquer it. So uh, it's, it's fascinating to me that he would take paint or, you know, and, and mark the shields of the men with this sign. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, really an act of faith. If yep. he thinks that this is the Christian God, would he have known about the Christian God? Would he have heard of this or is just this coming out of the blue and this is a miraculous divine intervention in his life? Yeah, well, once again, Ben, we have conflicting traditions. Uh, so according to some of the ancient historians, uh, his father, Constantius Chlorus, had been a worshiper of uh, the one God. I think certainly Constantine would have heard of Christians. Uh, he, he would have known enough to kind of understand a little bit about what this sign might mean. Uh, would there have been the worship of the Sol Invictus as well? And there's something about like the, yeah. the Christ standing in front of the, the, the unconquerable sun? Yeah, the, the unconquered sun. Yeah, the, 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 it's really actually kind of complex to understand uh, exactly what's going on with the cult of the unconquered sun in, uh, in Rome. That really was, uh, if I understand correctly, originally a title of the god Apollo. Um, but you can kind of see a movement toward monotheism. And, um, and it, was, it was very common in the ancient world, a lot of people don't realize this, uh, for uh, maybe more sophisticated pagans uh, to recognize that there was one true supreme God. And they often did recognize uh, this one supreme God as the God of the Hebrews. In fact, that we have ancient pagan philosophers uh, who would say um, that, that the Jews were an entire race of philosophers precisely because they recognized only one God. So I think that when we think about Constantine's conversion, of course, he wasn't baptized until he was on his deathbed in the year 337, uh, even though uh, he became a great promoter uh, of the Christian faith and, um, and gave a whole lot, and we'll talk more about this, right, institutional support uh, to the church, began reforming Roman law in really positive ways uh, and in ways that, um, that tended to foster uh, the life of the church. Um, but I think we need to think about his conversion to Christianity as a kind of gradual growth in his understanding. Certainly in 312, he understood that Christians worship one God and that this was the God uh, under whose sign he was, he was gonna proceed with the battle. Thank you, I, the, this, this history, uh, all the history surrounding this is fascinating. And and I think his conversion of a slow conversion is like many people in our life, that even if we might have been baptized Christian, baptized Catholic, that it takes slow degrees in growth of, of our discipleship. And mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila talks about that, that why do we grow so slowly in the, in the spiritual life? It's because we only give ourselves to God slowly mm -hmm. in degrees. And so Constantine is, is on the, on the trajectory, trajectory towards recognizing the Christian God. He's, he's won this victory. 
And his mother has this inspiration that she, so she's a devout Christian at this time, that she wants to raise the cross from the dust. She wants to go to the lands that Christ mm -hmm. walked in and she wants to go and find the cross. Now, we might think, well, yeah, well, actually, what did happen to the cross? Yeah, what, what happens to the Holy Land, as we call it? What happens to the Holy Land in 70 AD? Because yeah. she's, there's going to be a lot of, of, of history that's preceding this movement towards where she's going to go. Yeah, so actually, Ben, before we jump back a couple centuries to talk about that, because that, that's a really important thing to talk about and maybe something a lot of people don't, uh, you know, haven't, haven't had a chance to learn about too much. I, I think one thing we want to mention about Constantine's conversion uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll indulge in a little speculation, um, is, is the fact that uh, with Constantine, Constantine is able to bring to an end the following year, in the year 313, uh, actually the worst persecution that the Roman Empire ever perpetrated on uh, the church. I mentioned Diocletian earlier, uh, the great, in many ways great, uh, from a kind of secular point of view, but the emperor uh, who had split the empire and so forth, he had eventually initiated in the year 303 uh, what's often known simply as the Great Persecution, uh, which produced a huge number of martyrs. That especially happened in the East. Uh, there was persecution in the West as well, but not nearly as much as in the East. And so Constantine's conversion and now having such a highly placed ally uh, in, in the Roman government was just, it, it, it seemed miraculous uh, to a lot of Christians who suddenly went from uh, in a very real way, living uh, the cross to having that cross um, exalted and, and honored publicly. No, thank you for bringing that. I, t I, I had forgotten about the, the Edict of Milan, mm -hmm. right, which then now legalizes Christianity. Right. And what a surprise it would be to the emperor, you become the number one hunted group by the emperor in, in many ways with this persecution as Christians. And all of a sudden the emperor is friendly to Christians, mm -hmm. makes it legal. And then Constantine even donates land, mm -hmm. gives money right. to, to Christian things. I mean, what a worldview shift in just a short amount of time for the, the Christians. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and of course, as with, as with all things, uh, there will be some special temptations that, that come with that. But maybe we should, we should uh, come back to that Later on, you, you brought up the, the kind of question of the history of um, the Holy Land uh, after the time of Christ. So, um, uh, as you mentioned, the year 70 was very significant. Uh, in, in the year 66, uh, there was uh, a Jewish rebellion uh, that began against the Roman government. There was a protracted war. It didn't actually end until the year 73. Uh, and it was, by all accounts, um, a really brutal and, and tragic uh, affair. It's something our Lord had predicted uh, would happen. Um, I always think, by the way, uh, as a little sidebar, that uh, it's, it's profoundly moving to, to think about the fact that it was just before the Jewish uprising that would lead to uh, the sacking of Jerusalem, the slaughter of so many, uh, of so many Israelites, and uh, the destruction of the temple. It was just before that that Nero launched the first um, uh, Roman persecution of Christians in Rome. And especially if we uh, adhere to the tradition that St. Mark's gospel uh, is really the preaching of Peter uh, to Christians in Rome and thinking about Mark's emphasis on taking up the cross and discipleship and following the Lord on the path of the cross and realizing that uh, Christians were asked to join their Lord in uh, suffering destruction at the hands of the Romans, even before uh, the brothers and sisters of Christ, according to the flesh, the Jews, were going to suffer that 
uh, in Israel. It's a powerful thing uh, to meditate on. It is, and the fact that Jesus himself suffered destruction at the hands of the Romans. Exactly. That Jesus right. is never going to ask us to do something in our life of discipleship that he hasn't led the way in, mm -hmm. to set an example for us. Uh, and so in 60, so Jesus dies, he ascends into heaven, he gives this what we call the Great Commission, the sending forth of, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts of the Apostles, in the very beginning, he gives them the plan of how to move from Jerusalem to mm -hmm. Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's how the outline of Acts of the Apostles goes. It begins in Jerusalem, but ends with Paul preaching in the capital city of the emperor, the Roman emperors, in Rome. And so we have the command of Christ, but we also have his history kind of pushing the Christians out to the ends of the earth as well, because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So they, right. they can't use it as a center anymore. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the Lord, as I said, predicted what was going to happen to uh, Jerusalem in the year 70. Uh, this is recorded. You can see it in, um, in Matthew chapter 24, in Mark chapter 13, and in Luke chapter 21. Um, and it seems to be the case that the early Christians got the message. Uh, there's a tradition that many of the, uh, that, that early Christian community we see in, in Jerusalem was able to flee from the city and go um, up uh, north to a city called Pella and, and kind of hunker down until it was safe to return. You also see, by the way, the divine um, wisdom and providence in the structure of the Jerusalem community. Uh, where they actually gave up all of their earthly possessions so that they were ready to travel light hmm. when it was time uh, to flee from a city that was under the sign of destruction. So you got this great real estate tip from our Lord. That's right, like that's this, right. The city yep. will not stand, sell everything you have. So when we see the community in Acts selling things, mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're helping the elderly, the poor, everyone get out of town. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, by the time you get to the 60s and they, they have to take off. So um, they seem to have, have returned. And, and according to Eusebius, whom I mentioned earlier, is uh, one of our earliest church historians, uh, the first, I think it was 10 bishops of Jerusalem were actually all Jewish Christians. Um, and, uh, and we see the kind of centrality of, of, uh, of again, the, the Jewish Christian community in Jerusalem. Well, all that came to um, a, a really sad end in the 130s, when there was another, it's actually really a third, there was a kind of scattered Jewish uprising at the very beginning of the second century, sometimes called the Ketos War. Again, don't worry, there's no test, uh, unless you take my course, which I encourage you to do. Um, in 132, there was, there was another uh, uprising that centered on um, uh, an individual named Simon bar Kosiba but whom they called Simon, uh, they called him Bar Kokhba, son of the star, which seems to be a reference to the Messianic prophecy in Numbers 24. Um, many Jews thought that, that this was the Messiah who was gonna liberate them at last uh, from Rome. Um, unfortunately, they were mistaken. And this, this rebellion was put down um, uh, quite decisively by the emperor Hadrian. Now, when Hadrian uh, conquered the city, he decided that he was just done with these, uh, these Jewish rebellions. And so he actually expelled all Jews from the city, which is the reason why from this time forward, uh, the Christian bishops of Jerusalem were Gentiles. Hmm. And Eusebius points this out, that, that since the Jewish, uh, the Jewish Christian community was, was pushed out, they had Gentile bishops uh, kind of taking over. Well, um, Hadrian, uh, didn't, didn't stop there by kicking the Jews out. He, um, he, he refounded the city um, as a, a kind of Greco-Roman city-state. 
uh, along the lines of many of the other Hellenized, uh, Romanized cities in, in the area. He renamed it Aelia Capitolina. Aelia was a little nod to himself. One of his names was Aelius, A-E-L-I-U-S. So Aelia, and then Capitolina in honor of uh, Capitoline Zeus, who was one of the main gods of the city of Rome. So he really wanted to stamp Jerusalem uh, with this kind of new pagan uh, identity uh, built around the veneration of the pagan gods. And uh, to kind of uh, uh, push that program forward, it seems to be the case that um, he intentionally covered Jewish and Christian sites with, uh, with new pagan structures uh, of worship. And that included um, uh, where the Jerusalem temple had been, but then also uh, Golgotha, where uh, the Lord was crucified, which is right next to the tomb. You get that most clearly in the Gospel of John, uh, how, just how close... Uh, uh, the tomb and, and the cross were to one another. Uh, and also the cave in Bethlehem where our Lord was born. These were covered with pagan shrines. So would that indicate to us looking back in history that these were also pilgrimage sites already? That Christians were visiting these sites because they were connected to the, the life of Christ? Yeah. Um, this, like with many things yeah. in those very early decades of the church, is really hard to prove. But there does, there does seem to be some good uh, evidence of this. Um, Certainly, the Gospels themselves suggest that the tomb was a site of some interest uh, among Christians, right? We have so many stories about Mary Magdalene and the myrrh-bearing women going to the tomb, the apostles uh, visiting the tomb. Um, it stands to reason that the Christians in that Jerusalem community would have remembered where that tomb was. One of the earliest references we have uh, to that specific place after the New Testament, this is actually a really important one, it comes from um, a bishop in Sardis in Asia Minor named Melito, St. Melito of Sardis. And uh, he talks about having visited Jerusalem. Uh, now again, this is after Hadrian has, has rebuilt the city, but he says that he saw the place where the Lord was crucified, suggesting that even after this refounding of Jerusalem as a pagan city, the local Christians kept, kept alive a tradition of where these sites were. And, and actually, if we go to the third century, there is one text that suggests that maybe the top of the spur of Golgotha was still visible. Hmm. Uh, but that, we're getting a little technical yeah, sure. there. Sure. <laughs> no, this is, this is fascinating. I love it. This is, so you got to take Dr. Seahorn's class. What's it called again? The, the Church the, in the Ancient Church, Medieval World. Church in the Ancient Medieval World. Yeah. So we're, we're, so Hadrian, by a gift of divine providence, he had no intention to do this, inadvertently saves, kind of marks the places that are important to the Christian community. That's right. St. Helena goes to Jerusalem, has complete access to her son's treasury, mm -hmm. and she decides to tear down these pagan temples. What a shock to that community. And then starts That's digging right. and looking for these yeah. foundations. Yeah, so in around 324 or so, uh, St. Helena goes to the Holy Land and wants to, she asks the Christians, like, where are these places? And it's really interesting, as I said, Melito and there are others, uh, origin and others who show that there was there were local traditions about about these um, about these sites, and to me one of the most compelling little facts here uh, is this: the the spot where Golgotha is, and and you can visit it today in Jerusalem. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is actually built over both the small little hill of Calvary of Golgotha, where the Lord was crucified, and it houses the tomb uh, of Christ, and. Um, 
that spot was actually under uh, a kind of retaining wall. And so it was, it was really difficult uh, um, uh, uh, in terms of the, the labor required. It was expensive to dig there. And, and actually, if you look at a, the layout of Jerusalem at the time, there were big open places nearby where it would have been very easy if we had to just come up with a site to build a new church. Uh, they could have done it much uh, less expensively, much more easily. But the Christians in Jerusalem said, no, uh, right here, uh, your highness, this is, this is where we got to dig. So my understanding of the story is that they start digging and, they, and she's hoping to find the cross of Christ. Mm -hmm hopefully preserved because now that it's been preserved from the elements because it's been buried in the ground. The Romans thinking these things are, uh, these instruments of death are unclean. They, and just, what do you do with them? You just, you know, throw them in the ground. They dig a hole. And she has this act of faith to start digging. And she digs and digs and digs and she strikes a piece of wood, the title, the titulus, on which were, would have been written Jesus, the son of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, King of the Jews. And uh, then she start, discovers more wood and discovers three crosses. What, how is she gonna figure out which one's the cross of Christ? Did they label it? Like this one was Jesus, this one was Dismas, this one was Gorgon or whatever the name of the bad thief was. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, well, once again, we have conflicting stories, right? Uh, they do start quite early. The first, uh, the first reference that we have uh, to St. Helena uh, finding the cross is actually, it actually comes from St. Ambrose. Uh, so a few decades so the spiritual uh, father later, of St. Augustine. Spiritual father of St. Augustine. So he's very, uh, he's very dear to us here at the uh, Augustine Institute. So Ambrose mentions that. It starts showing up in other reports from other fathers. And when it comes to this question of how do they know which one was the cross of Christ, um, again, we have, we have kind of different stories. Some seem to suggest that it was enough to find that titulus and that it was kind of connected to the cross so they knew which one it was. Others say that St. Um, Helena called for three uh, sick people and that, uh, that, each of the, that one of the crosses was touched to each of them and the one who became well uh, was identified as, as the cross of Christ. Even a little bit later, um, you can maybe see the story getting embellished. Uh, now it's actually three corpses that she mm -hmm. asks for, or rather one corpse of someone who's recently dead. And, um, and so uh, they, they touch the wood of each of the crosses to the corpse and one of them comes back to life. Now, whatever historical value is there, it is clear that um, by the year 351 or so, we have references from the Bishop of Jerusalem to the, the wood of the Holy Cross. Uh, it becomes a big part of the Jerusalem liturgy, especially during Holy Week. Um, the bishop would, 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 yeah, yeah would hold, and, and, and this is the, the kind of origin of um, the adoration of the Holy Cross that we still do uh, on Good Friday that started in Jerusalem because of the finding of the cross. And what I was gonna say is, you know, what, whatever um, the precise historical truth behind these things, look at the faith that it, that it reveals in the early church. How do we know the cross of Christ? We know the cross of Christ because it is life-giving. The cross of Christ, right, the instrument of his death is life-giving. As the, the great, um, in the East, they have that wonderful line at Easter that they sing, that uh, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by his death, hmm. right? That is beautiful. That's the, the extent to which she goes to discover this cross. And uh, I know she brings, the, there's still marks of the cross that are in, in the Holy Land that she leaves. And she, 
uh, also fills the bottom of her boat. This is where I, I was able to see the relic of the true cross was in Rome. How did it get to Rome? Well, she fills the bottom of her boat that makes the ballast dirt from the Holy Land. Uh, and uh, she, then she brings back the nails that she finds, the titulus she finds, the title, and she part of the spear of Longinus, and she brings them to Rome, and she makes them as part of her, her chapel. So she's like, I can't stay in the Holy Land, but I can bring the dirt from the Holy Land with me and worship. And so if you go to Rome, it's Santa Croce. It's a church uh, right down the street from St. John Lateran. The, there's a f the floor of the chapel that where the relics are is dirt from the Holy Land. And then you see part of the true cross, you see a, a nail from, the, uh, from, the, from Christ, a part of the crown of thorns, some of the thorns there. It's a beautiful act of faith that she wants that we need these tangible signs, that she wanted these mm -hmm. tangible signs, that she discovered the cross and wanted to bring it back and have other people adore it and remember what Christ did for us on the cross. And so if you go to Rome, I encourage you to go to Santa Croce in Jerusalem, it's called. It's the Holy Cross in Jerusalem because it's dirt from the Holy Land. And uh, another thing that St. Helena does is uh, she gives us an you know, a example of never giving up and persevering because she was in her 80s when she went to the Holy Land. She was in the 80s when she went to go and, and find the true cross so that the world might see the cross mm -hmm. and the world may know it. And so we're very grateful to St. Helena on, on this, her feast day. Uh, so if you've never heard of that story, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, also take Dr. Seahorn's class. Uh, and, you know, come and join us in the, in the graduate school. And it's a chance for us to reflect too that she is now a, a saint in heaven. She's beholding our Lord. Uh, and she was a great example to her son. Her son ends up being baptized and being made a Christian on his deathbed. So what a wonderful testimony that parents have for their children. And, um, you know, this is a, a lesson for all of us. And the, the lesson is um, the cross is going to come to our life. It, suffering always comes to our life. But do we see it as an opportunity uh, to bear the cross with Christ? There's so much suffering that's wasted in our lives, suffering that we don't unite to Christ's suffering on the cross. This is how we can make what we call, as Christians, redemptive suffering or participation, so participating in the suffering of Christ on the cross. And so this is St. Helen, the great historical story, also gives us a great example of how do we find the cross in our own life? Because the cross comes and we find the cross, we find Jesus, and we find life. Thank you for watching and joining us. Thank you for your support in the Mission Circle and may the Lord bless you. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, eBooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.